What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? Most of you will have heard that paradox before. An unstoppable force and an immovable object. It's really a thought experiment and it's used to illustrate for consistency in our logical thinking and our need to understand the physical and material worlds. You see, an unstoppable force would require infinite energy, infinite activity, and an immovable object would have to occupy an infinite amount of space, so it would have to be everywhere. And if that's difficult for you to wrap your head around, that's how it should be. It doesn't really compute because in one sense, it actually can't. And that's the point of a paradox. Here's another paradox for you. Uncertainty is the only certainty there is. And knowing how to live with insecurity is indeed the only security. It doesn't quite make sense, yet at the same time, in a way, it kind of does. And that's another paradox for you. See, paradoxes exist to cause us to contemplate the nature of our very existence, who we are, how the world works, why we are here, what are we doing. They cause us to examine the deeper things in life and to reflect on the reality we find ourselves in. But what if I told you that there was actually something immovable, something unstoppable, What if I told you there actually was something you could be totally certain about, totally secure in? Because, church, we have that answer. And that's the purpose of this text today. That's what we'll find here. And it's one of the most important things we could ever wrap our head around. We're going to be back in the book of Romans today as we look to finish up our mini-series in chapter 8 this year. Today we'll look to answer from God's word what Christians are to do and what Christians are to think in light of our constant struggle in this broken and wicked world. Romans chapter 8, one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. And in terms of paradoxes, friends, Romans 8 does a wonderful job at detailing out that we're currently living in one. We're living right now in what the theologians will call the already but not yet. What that means is that the kingdom of God in one sense has come already with Jesus' first coming, and yet the kingdom of God in another sense has not yet come until Jesus comes again, the already but not yet. So you have this present age, and you have the age that is to come, and right now you and I, we're in this really unique sliver right in the middle as we await Christ's return. And this text tells us exactly what that should look like in the here and now. So Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. So verse 31 to the end of the chapter. I'm going to go ahead and read it now. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also With him, graciously give us all things. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is, inter- who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, I have three points for you from today's text. Three points in the form of three statements. And these are three statements that will change your life. So statement or point number one, God is for you. That's verse 31 and 32. God is for you. Point number two, no one can condemn you. That's verses 33 and 34. And point number three, nothing can separate you. That's verse 35 to the end of the chapter. So God is for you. No one can condemn you. And nothing can separate you. Again, chapter 8 itself is the conclusion to a much greater argument that's being made ever since chapter 5. So chapters 5 and 6 of Romans, if you just want to read through 5 through 8 in your time this week, chapters 5 and 6 are about what it looks like to be saved and united to Christ. Right? What does that actually look like for the Christian? Now in chapter 7 in Romans, it addresses well, why doesn't it always seem like that or feel like that all the time? And then what we have here in chapter 8 is chapter 8 concludes by addressing the issues of sin and addressing the issue of suffering. And hear me out, this text right here, Romans 8, 31 to 39, has answers to both of those, sin and suffering. This passage addresses the hardship of God's people in the here and now and what that means for them in the there and then. So point number one, God is for you. Again, that's verse one, uh, verse 31 and verse 32. In verse 31, Paul poses a massive question. If you look right there, he writes, what then shall we say to these things? As a reminder, this comes on the heels of the ever well-known Romans 8, 28 that God works all things together for the the good of those whom he has foreknown, of those whom he has predestined, of those whom he has called and justified and soon will glorify. And so those things are the these things Paul is talking about here. What shall we say to these things? That's what they are. You ever wonder, how can I really know that God loves me? That he's really for me? Well, for the Christian, for the one who has turned from his or her her sin and put his hope and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, no, he made it a point to know you and to set his love upon you before the universe was ever created. And then he chose you 
and he effectually called you into his own divine family and then he pronounced you righteous and he pronounced you blameless in his sight so that he could spend eternity with you. Friends, that looks a lot like love. That looks a lot like someone being for you. What then shall we say to these things? Well, in posing a massive question, Paul then answers that question by making a massive statement in the form of another question. What shall we say to these things? Well, if God is for us, and indeed he is for those who are his, then who can be against us? Notice the confidence. Notice the certainty in Paul's tone. Make no mistake about it. God is forever for you, Christian. God is for Jeremy Leong. He is for James Choi and for Danny Decker and for Vicki Baldwin and for Philip Reynolds. God is for you. He doesn't just waver day to day depending on your performance. He doesn't waver day to day depending on the mood he's in or on what sort of kind of what have you done for me lately kind of deal. You know, one thing I am notorious for is being in an absolutely foul mood upon waking up, particularly from a nap. I don't know what in the world is happening to me, but waking up from a nap is surely me at my worst, and Carissa has come to take me less than 1% seriously these days. What's more than that, what's worse than that is somehow I've handed it down to my children. Uh, It's in their DNA. Sometimes I'll hear my wife go up and wake up our 18-month Uh, son and you wait in their silence and then surely the beast has awoken christian god's goodness isn't like that it's not limited to a mood swing some sort of superstition some kind of bartering system for good works no his goodness is ever present always because he is ultimately for you and that will never change. One of Martin Luther's partners early on in the Reformation, his name was Philip Melanchthon, he had this verse posted to the traveling bed uh, 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 in his dying days because that's when he was at his happiest, is when he would read those words and when he would hear them read to him by a visitor or an attendant. When they would read them, he would exclaim, that's it. Yes, again, again, again. There was nothing of greater comfort and assurance for him. I recognize that there may very well be folks here today who perhaps don't always feel this way, who perhaps are struggling with this idea that God is actually for you. Perhaps you're here today and you're thinking, you know, you have no idea where I'm at right now. You have no idea how sideways my life is right now. You have no idea. I just can't see how God could ever be for me. And brother and sister, I get that. I really do. And I I, I grieve with you the heaviness of life right now. But if I could just say, dear brother or sister, that God, that God who is against you, that God who you think just kind of gets a kick out of ruining your life and ruining your plans and withholding good things from you. That's a God who doesn't exist. And with all due respect and as a lighthearted encouragement, that's like me being genuinely convinced that like Darth Vader is out there to get me or that 
uh, James Bond really needs my help. They're fictional. They're not real. It's a lowercase g with those fake attributes and fake attitudes towards you. God is for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? The use of the word against here is a very Old Testament use of the word. One of the worst, most terrifying phrases anybody would have or could have heard was God saying, I am against you, or I have set myself against you. I think of texts like Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 31, which reads, Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come the time when I will punish you. Or Ezekiel 13, 8, that says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. But on this side of the new covenant, again, for the Christian, in God being for you and for me, nothing can stand against us. Nothing can shake us out of God's grasp. It's like saying, if there is an unstoppable force, what could ever get in its way? Infinite energy, infinite activity towards you. If the one who is indestructible, incorruptible, unbeatable has set his love upon you and is with you, well, how could you ever lose? How could you ever be lost? How could you ever be forgotten about or crushed? Church, I'm not sure what each and every one of us is up against right now. Perhaps it's, it's, it's a lot of hardship in marriage. Perhaps it's difficulty with finances or maybe a really difficult situation at work and you just can't help but feel trapped right now. Perhaps you're just exhausted and feeling like you've hit another dead end. Whatever it may be, dear friend, press on. Hope on. Hold on because God is for you. And he is indeed working all things together for your good. And how can you know that? How can you know that he is for you? Well, it's because he gave us his son. He gave us his son. Verse 32, if you look there with me, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can we know that God is truly for us? He gave us his son. That is hard evidence. Friends, just to be clear, nobody does that. Nobody just gives up their own child. Nobody just gives up their son, their only begotten, beloved son for a stranger, less an alien, less an enemy. Nobody gives up their beloved son for anyone unless they are absolutely committed to them. And I have to ask, if God has withheld nothing from us, why do we continue to withhold from him? Why do we continue to withhold our plans, our relationships, our finances, ultimately our hearts from God? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall we not also give him all things? Because if he gave up his son for us, how can we ever doubt that he will not finally and fully come through for us, friends? How can we ever doubt that he is indeed working all things together for our good? 
It's as the famous Scottish minister, Horatius Bonar, put it. He said, what will he not bestow? He spared not his son. Tis this that silences each rising fear. Tis this that bids that hard thought disappear. He spared not his son. This is why we heard from Genesis chapter 22 earlier. The story of Abraham being willing to offer up his son Isaac because that passage is critical to understanding verse 32 today. Not only to carve out a category for the putting forward of his beloved son, but also to carve out a category for God so graciously providing a substitute to die. That phrase there in verse 32 then, if you look, it says, gave him up. That's translated 15 times in the final chapter of Matthew's gospel. Sorry, final three chapters of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is being delivered up by the Father for you. And yet he went willingly. He obeyed the Father for you. Think of the horrors of that cross. The divine weight of God's wrath against your sin, against my sin. And he went to that cross joyfully to make atonement for our sins. I say this in our membership uh, class, a great way of thinking about atonement is to be aware and to be thinking of what is being done in the at-one-ment. Because of Christ's willing sacrifice, you and I are now being able to be made one with God. It's what needed to take place in order for our relationship to be restored. And on that note, as a brief side, some of you might be familiar with the theological term limited atonement. Typically, it's going to be associated with the question, for whom did Christ die? Who is the us there? When it says gave him up for us all, which, by the way, is a corporate word, us, rather than promoting mere individualism. But as pastor and theologian John Piper helpfully points out, our understanding of that question is first dependent on how we understand the nature of the atonement. In other words, not just the for whom did Christ die, but the what did Christ actually achieve by his death? So for the first question, Jesus either died for every human being in the same way, which would be unlimited atonement, or he died for those who believe in a particular way. That's limited atonement, definite atonement, particular atonement. I could go on at length about this and point to how the scriptures point to this time and time again. And how the New Testament is filled with this kind of explicit teaching and really cannot be more clear. But to sum it up, the Bible simply states that God purchased you with the price of his son and he knew exactly what he was buying. He knew exactly what he was paying for and who he was paying for, right? You don't just walk into a store with a $100 bill and say, here you go, give me whatever you've got. No, you walk in and you say, it's that. That's exactly why I'm here. That is exactly what I'm here to purchase. And that is what happened at the cross. As humanity has woken up every single day and chosen themselves over God, chosen sin over God, chosen to run headlong towards the pit of hell instead of towards his kingdom, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up. For us all. And if he was willing to pay that price for you, if he was willing to pay that price for me, well, what does that say about how far he will go for us? How will he not also give us everything? 
And that's the point of that last part of verse 32. If God did that for you, look at the last part of verse 32 there. It says, how will he not also with him give us all things? So two things to note here. First, notice the words with him there. To be clear, none of this happens apart from Christ. God doesn't just award all sorts of prizes for us being special. Our eternal life is not just some kind of like top shelf or top tier award. Rather, our eternal life is just the natural result of being united to him, united to Jesus in a death like his, that we might be united to Jesus in a life like his. It's not just some sort of gold medal No, it's what happens when we are swept up into the triune love and fellowship of the eternal God. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about receiving all things. We receive with him as we inherit as heirs, just as Christ inherited as heir. The second thing to note here are the words all things. This, of course, is not just talking about earthly health and wealth and happiness All of that you could ever imagine. Anyone who would suggest that to you is lying to you. Just a few verses back in verse 18, Paul says that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Well, so then what are these things? What are all these things we're looking forward to receiving? Well, again, back to verse 30. He has foreknown us. He has predestined us. He has justified us. And we are now simply waiting on that final glorification. That's where we are in the process. We have all of these alreadys. And this is the not yet that's remaining. This is that one last domino that is to fall. That's what we're anticipating. But man, it can just seem so abstract sometimes. So far sometimes. You ever think about the timeline of your life? Childhood, adolescence, perhaps college, constructing a career, maybe having a family, reaching retirement, and so on and so forth. And then, pretty grim for a second, I know, but death and a gravestone. But if you think about your life for a moment and everything that takes place throughout the course of it, and then you picture that gravestone, you picture your name on it, you think about that gravestone, what tells the story about your life there? Or perhaps better words, what represents your life there? What represents each and every stage of it, each and every achievement and success, each and every trial and sorrow? All of it is contained in that dash. 1959 dash 2045, 1993-2032, 2002 to 2030. It's all right there. You know how many of those dashes could fill up this entire room? Well, the Bible teaches that that little dash determines everything else. The timeline of our lives on this earth contained in that And then everything else, eternity, all of this, all of that is what the Christian has to look forward to. 
those things to be infinitely received with the one who gave himself for you and longs to spend eternity with you, lavishing grace upon grace upon grace forever. To anyone here today who would perhaps not call yourself a Christian, and I trust that there are some, or perhaps anyone here today who would call yourself a Christian, but it's more of a demographic to you. You spent a lot of time around Christianity, but deep down you know you don't believe. That's not what you want. I get that you may be here feeling relatively indifferent towards God today. But respectfully, have you ever stopped to question whether he feels the same way towards you? Because here's the thing. The Bible teaches that if you are not in Christ, if you are not so much turning from your sin but persisting in it, and if you are therefore not a part of God's people, then he indeed is not only not for you, And neither is he indifferent towards you. He is actually actively against you. The God of eternity against you while you remain on this course. And so I want to invite you, dear friend, just as Jesus did, just as Jesus does right now to turn from your sin. It has nothing for you of lasting value. It will only serve to destroy you. It will consume that tiny timeline of your life only for you to get to the end and for it to curse you as you spend an eternity apart from God and all his goodness. Turn from your sin. Place your hope and faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves you, who died for you, who defeated death for you, and who would be coming again for you. Because no matter what you've done, no matter what you could ever do, he is faithful to forgive all who call upon him. Would you make today the day that you turn and call upon him? I pray that it would be so. But Christian, God is for you. Point number one, now point number two, no one can condemn you. No one can condemn you. When I say no one can condemn you, when Paul says no one can condemn you, that's exactly what it means. That's exactly what Paul means. Because of the punishment that Christ bore on the cross, the slate is wiped clean for all who would trust in him. There's nothing to condemn anymore, as verse 34 puts it. And as verse 33 puts it, if you look there, there's nothing to even accuse anymore. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, it says. God has already declared his verdict over you, Christian. He has already justified his elect as blameless in his sight. I've heard one ministry leader say that this verse is kind of like fast-forwarding to Judgment Day. A real place, a real day, a real time, and a real judge. But you already know the ruling. You've already been given the ruling before it even gets there. Because to be justified by God is to walk into that courtroom having already received the verdict in advance. There is no question, there is no anxiety, there is no hypervigilance involved in fearing if you're actually going to end up being found guilty. Friends, this is the joy. This is the blessing and the privilege of justification. It removes condemnation. And says the late J.I. Packer wrote, he said, justification is the primary blessing because it meets our most primary spiritual need. 
Something key that needs to be drawn out and made clear is that uh, justification is not just forgiveness. Don't get me wrong, forgiveness is a wonderful blessing. But forgiveness, uh, uh, but justification is more than just forgiveness. Because what justification is, is it's a declaration. Picture this, just forgiveness is like walking backwards through life. Looking back, forgiving. Looking back, forgiving. Looking back, forgiving. But imagine walking backwards through church here today, friend. Imagine going to the airport, walking backwards, going to your work, walking backwards through life. But what justification does is allows us to spin around and actually walk forward through life in full assurance. It totally disarms Satan, as Paul wrote to the Colossians. Imagine a world when you didn't have that kind of assurance. On your worst days, on your worst day even this week, the enemy would use that, Christian, to crush you. He will stir your doubts and he will crush you. If justification, if imputed righteousness is not a reality now, well then neither is no condemnation. In other words, if we are not counted righteous now in Christ, well we can't experience no condemnation in Christ. And how does Romans 8, chap, uh, Romans chapter 8 start out in verse 1? It says, therefore, uh, there is therefore what? Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing to condemn. Nothing to even accuse. That goes for any accusation that comes from out there. And friend, that goes for any accusation that comes from within as well. Sometimes we're our greatest accuser. Sometimes we're our greatest condemner. And this text tells us that even our own thoughts and words can't hold. Verse 33 finishes out saying, it is God who justifies. Basically, he is the infinitely holy one. He makes the rules, not your feelings, not your CEO or HR department or some kind of worldly standard for justice. It's as though I had one of my employees come up to me and, and, and tell on a coworker and say, Jeremy, hey, I just want you to know I don't think so-and-so is going to complete their project on time. And I look at them and I say, wait a second, what are you talking about? I already took care of that project for them. I've already excused them from that, and I've told them I've excused them. It's not that I'm overlooking anything. It's that it is finished. What's the accusing employee going to say now? Nothing. Because there's nothing left to be said, just as there is nothing left to be said of us. There is nothing to accuse there is nothing to condemn. The payment isn't pending. The payment is processed and posted. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And Paul doesn't stop there. He continues his crescendo in the middle of verse 34. He says more than that. Christ is the one who died, but more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. A pastor friend of mine put it this way. He said that if the punishment of sin is death, if the wages of sin is indeed death, then, well, then once Christ paid for sin, he had to rise. Think of Jesus falling on a spiritual grenade for you and taking all of God's wrath for sin against you, and then there is nothing left. And he rises again. And not just resurrection, not just ascension even, but intercession as well, at the right hand of God, right now, interceding for us. 
We've talked a lot about what Jesus has done in the past, and rightly so. But friends, our salvation is incomplete. Remember this. Our salvation is incomplete if we do not also take into account and remember what's taking place right now in the present. Right this very moment, Jesus is interceding for you. And what does that mean? Another faithful brother says to think of Jesus as your defense attorney, representing your interests in court, representing your interests in the court of heaven as we speak right now, pointing to his own blood as proof of your innocence and praying for all your needs before the heavenly father. What an absolutely glorious thought to behold. Or as we were encouraged on our men's retreat from Robert Murray McShane, says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would fear not a million enemies. Dear saints, you want to be confident that there is absolutely no condemnation left for you? Meditate, believe, and be refreshed by the life, death, resurrection, and intercession of Jesus Christ for you. Would you commune with him even now? You've probably heard or perhaps even said a lot that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. But you've got to ask the question, well, what does that relationship then actually look like at its core? Well, I'll tell you, it looks an awful lot like a constant, humble meeting with Jesus at that cross and an active handing over of your sin in that solemn transaction as he takes it. And then you live freely by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Point number one, God is for you. Point number two, no one can condemn you. And now finally, point number three, nothing can separate you. That's verse 30, uh, 35 to 39. Nothing can separate you. Verse 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Basically, if nothing can condemn you, then nothing can separate you. Nothing, no one. And notice he writes there, look very closely, it says, who, who shall separate us, not what. He says, who shall separate us, but then he goes on to list a bunch of what's. The key here is, dear saint, never forget that Satan is looming around seeking to destroy you, and he uses the what's to blind you to the who. One Puritan reformer once wrote that the devil aims in all of the sufferings of God's children to draw them off from Christ, to make them murmur and despair. But in this he is defeated and disappointed, praise God, for God inspires his children with such a generous and a noble spirit that sufferings abate not their zeal and patience, but they rather increase them. Amen? Have you ever thought it so interesting that the very things that cause us to doubt God's promises are the very things that God promises? Suffering, sin, trials, death. You'll notice the first three there in verse 35. They're the pressures of living in a world that hates God. Tribulation, distress, persecution. The second were promised to us over and over and over again by Jesus. 
Time and time again, famine and nakedness, or in other words, destitution, being totally lacking what we need. What a word to us this afternoon as we wait for a permanent location. And then the final ones there are simply what the end of our lives lead to and what we should expect as Christians. Friends, we cannot forget the kind of world we live in. As we learned earlier this year, up in verse 18 through 21, early in this chapter, we're living in a decaying world which Paul says is going through birth pains in anticipation of the world to come. Tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and death. Birth pains that point to the dawning of new life. I've mentioned before that I had a professor in seminary who would say that heaven is an acquired taste, kind of like coffee. And that one of the primary ways Christians acquire such a taste is by experiencing the pain and evil and suffering of this passing world as we look forward to the next one. As the Bible testifies from cover to cover how God simply seeks for his people to trust him. Perhaps this is the, this is the ultimate test of trust for us. Trusting God as we walk through pain, trials, and suffering. And where does this walking lead to? That, my friend, is the question. That is the question because that question has two answers in the remaining verses of our passage. The first answer comes in verse 36. Well, where are we being led to in that walk? Well, verse 36 says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So answer number one, the slaughterhouse. Wow. Sure enough, Paul, what he's doing is he's quoting the Old Testament here, specifically Psalm 44. It's a psalm of Korah. It's a psalm that's written in the midst of deep despair, deep distress, rock bottom. And about how God's people are surrounded by persecution and humiliation and desperation for the Lord's deliverance. Kind of like you think of sheep in a corral waiting for their execution. And the psalm starts with the psalmist recounting all of the ways God has delivered them in the past. How he has delivered them previously. That's how it starts out. And in the end, there is still hope and anticipation. But then what's sandwiched right in the middle of this psalm? Hardship. Terror. Dejection. And dear friends, this is what we surely can expect as well, this side of heaven. Which is exactly why Paul goes to this psalm at this place in Romans chapter 8. He's encouraging us to look back in remembrance on how God has foreknown you, how God has called you and justified and delivered you time and time again, and then to look forward in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the hardship, to look forward to his final deliverance. I've said it before, but we give such a hard time to the prosperity gospel so the prosperity teachers, it's a, it's a conversation we could talk about at length, and yet it's far too common that deep down, friends, we really believe it. We really desire it. We really pursue it consciously, subconsciously. Examine yourself, as Paul says. This life is not designed for everything to go right for you and I. It's not ultimately about our personal kingdoms here, but his eternal kingdom there. Things may seem to go wrong for us this side of heaven, 
But I'm convinced they exist to ensure we stay leaning on the one who has made us right with God that we might make it to that side of heaven. Which leads us straight into the height of Paul's crescendo. Not just of this passage, not even just for this chapter. Really, this is the crescendo. This is the fortissimo in a grand orchestra. The, 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 the grand finale at a fireworks show is this section right here for all of Romans thus far. Because while the first answer to that question of where are we being led to may be compared to the slaughterhouse of Psalm 44, the second answer of where are we being led to is an eternal glory with the Lord Jesus. What is it they say? Pressure makes diamonds. Paul says, no, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. We, church, all the ransomed church of God being saved to sin no more, being saved from this decaying world and all of its wickedness and suffering that will pass away with it. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 37. Notice there, it says, in all these things. In them. Right smack in the middle of them, we are more than conquerors. Not outside of them, not apart from them, not after them. Uh, I don't know about you, I'm a very mental person. I like to have everything kind of sorted out and arranged before proceeding. I also have a very weak and sensitive digestive system. And so in weeks that are particularly wild and full and stressful, didn't eat well, I didn't sleep well, I felt overwhelmed, it's just very helpful to find a time when I can just kind of, you know, set time aside, settle everything down, get my ducks in a row, clear out notifications, and then, okay, I, th I think we're good to move on. That's not what this text is talking about, friends. It's not about once everything is okay in life, we are more than conquerors. It's not about everything this life, uh, uh, once it's after the fact, and after all of the hardship passes, then we're good. Because the moment you think you've got everything, you know, figured out, you've got everything, you know, in place, this fallen world has already got the next thing coming. It's already queued up. And friends, this is why it's so foolish to build our entire lives around comfort and convenience, around seeking to stay as safe and secure as possible, because it can and it will be gone in an instant. In all these things, we are more than conquerors, just as the psalmist in Psalm 44 continued to hope and count on the Lord's deliverance in the midst of rock bottom. Those words there, more than conquerors, that's actually one word. It's a word that the Apostle Paul makes up, who pair nikao, or hyper-Nike, which, yes, is the root word for where Nike gets its brand name. And Paul does this from time to time. He makes up compounds words in his writings to really emphasize what he's saying in an effort to be extraordinary, extraordinarily clear. This is, when he does that, it's like, do not miss this. He wants to leave absolutely no space, absolutely no error or misunderstanding. His point here is that there is an overwhelming, all-surpassing invincibility and victory for those who are Christ's. It's similar to what Paul says uh, to the Philippians in the famously ill-quoted and misquoted and used out of context Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
What Paul is saying there, what Paul is saying here is, I've had it all. I've had it all, and also I've had absolutely nothing. I've had the cushiest of living situations. I've been on the brink of death sleeping next to a dumpster. I've been celebrated for my faith. I've been beaten to a pulp because of my faith. I have been applauded for what I've taught, and I have been laughed at and ridiculed and chased out of town. And yet you do whatever you need to do because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am a super conqueror in Christ. Come whatever may, I am his and I know what awaits me and I cannot wait to enter into his presence forevermore. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, through the one who set his sights upon you in eternity past and said, he's mine. She is mine. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could spend a considerable amount of time on each one of these in this final couple of verses, but basically what Paul, what's going on here is Paul is thinking of every feasible threat, every possible conceivable worry, past, present, future, from without, from within, above, below, spiritual, physical. And yet his conclusion really couldn't be any more clear. Is there Anything that could go wrong, anything that could separate us from the love of God whatsoever. No. No, nothing at all. Nothing at all in time and space. Nothing ever, nothing, period, can separate us from the love of Christ in, or from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from eternal glory with him. Is there anything else? Is there anyone else who is for you like this, Christian? Is there anyone else who can love you like this? You know, throughout this passage, we get a ton of rhetorical questions as we conclude. Seven to be exact. Seven questions. Well, you would think seven answers, right? But we only get one. One answer for all seven. And that answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. Each question leads us straight to what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. All of these answers are found in the cross, and all of our answers are found in the cross. But what about this situation? What about that situation? Look at the cross, my friend. What about all the sin I have committed? What about all my issues? What about all these doubts I have that I haven't talked to anybody about? Look at the cross. Okay, but then how, do we, how can we help encourage one another then? How can we stay motivated? How can we be certain that the future God has promised us is actually going to materialize? The cross, the cross, the cross. One of my absolutely favorite books is The Valley of Vision. It's a book of prayers. And in there, there's a prayer titled God in Myself, and there's the words, whatever cross 
I am required to bear. Let me see him carrying his a heavier. Is there anything that is truly immovable or unstoppable? Is there anything that is truly certain or secure? You see, this world and, and, you know, some of our churches even out there these days will tell us that you're unstoppable. You have what it takes. You are the one who is worthy of all love and of all acceptance and everything you ever wanted in life. Name it, claim it, manifest it. That is utter nonsense and foolishness. Because it's not ultimately about you. It's about the immovable God. It's about his unstoppable love for you. It's like a a freight train you find yourself on. That is absolutely nothing about you that's taking you from here to there. It's all about God. And there is nothing more certain or secure than that. You want to know the greatest of all paradoxes? The idea of a paradox at its peak? Once again, it's the cross. The ultimate sign of weakness, yet the greatest sign of strength. Utter powerlessness, yet completely in control. An almighty king, but a lowly servant. A holy God loving the unholy. Enemies of God becoming friends of God. The death of one man leading to the life of all men. And finally, a shameful cross, yet a glorious throne. Let's pray. Lord God, what a thought it is to behold that you are indeed forever for us. That you gave your son for us. That you long to be with us. God, we pray for anyone here today who does not know you. God, would you soften their hearts and open their eyes towards their need of you, to the futility of this world. Lord, we also pray for those who do know you. God, for those you've set your infinite love upon from eternity past, would you draw near to them today? Comfort them. Convince them. Convince us by the power of your spirit that there indeed is no condemnation left because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. We love you, Lord, and we marvel that you've seen fit to love us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.